0: I'm not an um, IR person. I think they're, they're um, sort of, uh, I do uh, write on, on regionalism, regional integration, specifically on SARC. Uh, a few years ago, I happened to write a book on, on SARC itself, and um, mostly on the basis of an attempt to, to understand what I consider to be uh, the failure. When I was uh, first in India uh, as a student, uh, Sark was was created, and then I remember, in fact, sitting there with my friends, reading the newspaper. I think it was the India, and then trying to, kind of work out what what the uh, what Sark was going to to, to mean. Uh, and so then, after on this 25th anniversary, um, I, I wrote a, a book uh, to try to to evaluate uh, Sark. Uh, but of course, when you do so, you also then attempt to understand the reasons why or why we don't have. A great deal of positive uh, regional integration in, in South Asia. Um, also, of course, there's a political motivation. I guess I mean a few years ago, uh, during the, the Indian election, general election, uh, as a political analyst of, of the, uh, I was trying to understand the um, the BJP's manifesto, um, and one of the things that struck me was the emphasis that the manifesto. Uh, on, on regionalism and on the importance of regionalism, that was one of the, probably one of the few positive things, from my perspective, that the manifesto provided, and I was, you know, somewhat hopeful that, that uh, at the time, that that, that, the, uh, the, um, that India could play a part in trying to revive or trying to, to spearhead uh, regional integration in a much more positive manner. As you all know, um, this is a picture of, um, of the first <coughs> uh, summit after. Modi was elected, and there was uh, uh, kind of discrepancies between the uh, uh, both Pakistan and, and India. And this is a, a classic photo where uh, at the, uh, where uh, North Sharif was, was going to speak, and then uh, Narendra Modi was kind of trying to literally blow him off and just kind of reading the, the paper. Eventually, uh, they made up, and then they had a, a handshake and, and so on. But but it simplifies in my mind. The problems that, that we have um, in a region that actually should be quite cohesive, uh, if, I mean, in terms of cultural integration and, and the, uh, the the desire really of many people in, in the region to to have greater contact with each other, uh, but at the governmental level, we find that like, over relatively minor uh, issues, uh, you you have a failure of integration, and so I tried to explore and I, mean, I try to kind of explore some ideas. Um, I'm quite open to criticism because, like I said, it's exploratory ideas as to why I think uh, regional integration um, work, hasn't worked in South Asia and is unlikely to work, which is, which is perhaps a lot more, more bold in my part. Um, in terms of IR theory, there, there's, a, there's a, a general literature on uh, functionalism uh, that tries to, to posit that the erosion of state sovereignty would lead to uh, to greater integration uh, through collective governance and material interdependence, it's one of the kind of basic. I mean, there are many ways of uh, trying to analyze uh, regionalism, and one of them is, is this kind of basic uh, uh, norm or, or basic uh, approach by, by uh, undertaken by by functionalist. Functionalist uh, new functionalism is a theory of interdependence that posits that regional integration is mediated by <coughs> functional political spillovers, and uh, as the, the slide suggests, functional spillovers are those that work in the of economic uh, and, and single area issues, and then political spillovers are the creation of supranational governance models and regional institutions. In both of those areas, we do have some evidence of, of both you know, functional spillovers and political spillovers, uh, but nonetheless, none of those that have uh, you know, converged to actually create or, or lead to uh, of, uh, effective uh, regional integration. The institutions are, are well-known probably to many of you. Uh, the SARC, which as I mentioned just uh, earlier, which was founded in uh, 1985, um, said so I was a student at the time, it was my first, my first year living in India uh, trying to understand uh, the Country, which at the time was under great. Um, of course, now we look at India very differently. We look at a India. This prospect of regional integration actually seemed to be rather uh, a, a less interesting or, or worthwhile point at the time um, and but nonetheless SARC was created and, and as, as you know it has uh, currently eight member states and uh, one of the, the characteristics of SARC which makes it I think uh, very uh, likely to be an effective is that his, his is unanimity is this decision-making is required by its charter um, and also any controversial issue deemed by NMS members cannot be discussed in, in summits or, or any other topic. And so generally the, the uh, when, when you when you have seen uh, summits, uh, SARP summits that tend to be of relatively non anodyne issues that, that no one would really uh, uh, be, be opposed to uh, you know typically friendliness among nations and so on I think education, that. more education, you know, but but the actual uh, Bi- viable outputs of what what the institution has provided are, have been very few. It's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I was trying to actually work out what actually uh, SART had a- achieved in, in that period of time. And one of the things that, that I um, you know I, of course open to the to the paper simply the two things that I thought were uh, SART had had been effective. One was the the, the signing or helping the signing of a South Asian Free Trade Agreement. I'm a political economist, so I'm kind of fascinated by by that, by that specific outcome, uh, and also by the establishment of the Southern Asian University, two, th- two achievements in a 25-year period uh, and ongoing. And I think, I mean, I can't think of anything else that SART has uh, achieved uh, that would be of up- note. And so it's a sad, uh, in many ways, a sad uh, outcome from, from an institution that at the time was, was created with the expectation that it would, would lead to some kind of uh, peace building or, or a creation of institution building that, that would lead to peace. There are other regional institutions, um, some of them more obscure than others. Um, uh, BIMSTEC, uh, which includes uh, a number of the nations that are included in there. Uh, the the uh, Bangladesh Bhutan India Nepal Initiative, uh, also known as the South Asia Growth Quadrangle. The Ganga Cooperation uh, 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 Organization or institution, uh, which includes the nation, uh, which is, in essence, a very clear. Uh, uh, Effort by the by the Indian government to try to integrate itself with Southeast Asian nations. Um, the reason why we prob- most of you probably, if you even if you're uh, aware of, of in this, uh international uh, kind of standing or, or efforts to, to reach uh, East or West or whichever way it wants to look at a specific period, these institutions uh, are for the most part. I mean, I can't think of any any one single achievement of any of these institutions. I mean, you may come up with some, and I would be delighted to know, but but those are institutions that have achieved very little. Uh, and so, once again, let me say why is it, you know, why, what can India or what can countries that have uh, the, the, the incentive to create an institution then don't do anything once the institution is actually created. Um, <clears throat> as you're aware, uh, money, much of the approach on, on South Asia includes uh, an effort to, to integrate it into a secure, uh, security complex, um, and I think that uh, there's a dissonance between the structural institutional arrangements in South Asia. Um, uh, Busan and uh, Weaver uh, views uh, South Asia as a regional security complex wherein securities clustered in geographically uh, shaped regions and in, in South Asia being one, one such region that, that had a specific characteristics that other regions did not have. Um, then one of the kind of innovations that, that, that Busan and we were and others uh, have have created is of, of, uh, attempting to focus on both traditional and non-traditional security uh, threats uh, as being part or contained within the specific regional security complex. Much of the liter- I mean, this great deal of exciting literature on non-traditional security threats, I have contributed, you know, in a very small part uh, on efforts to, to understand um, energy security, for instance, you know, if, you know typically it's viewed, maybe less so now, but it's a, it's a non-traditional uh, security threat. Um, and then a regional security complex may have the presence of a regional hegemon, this one, of like the, the elements that Broussaint uh, that and Weaver uh, uh, suggested, um, the presence of a regional hegemon, regional buffer states, and regional alliances to balance the power of the regional hegemon. Of course, in, uh, South Asia, viewed in this way, uh, has uh, at least one uh, obvious uh, potential hegemon, like it or not, as the it's going to be India, and so the question is, you know, is the you know what happens when you have a situation where you have a, an obvious geographically uh, large country uh, in terms of demography, also uh, dominant in terms of this economic power, uh, relative perspective relative to others. So, if we view the regional security complex in you know as, as the word dots, you know, you have kind of some countries larger than others, more powerful than others, then uh, in this case, you have a, a hegemon-dominant regional security complex uh, with, with other players in the, in the, in the regional security yeah. complex that are aligned with the, uh, with the hegemon. Mm-hmm. Generally, uh, I would say that, that South Asia is an example of this, of uh, hegemon-dominant regional security complex, even though naturally you may have India as a more dominant power, but all the other the smaller uh, bubbles, I guess, would be the smaller states, uh, have not been very keen on, on accepting that, 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 that reality. Um, and then you may have a balanced power of your security complex where you have a, a, a dominant hegemon, i.e., or, uh, for example, India, uh, and then other actors that act to balance out. And I think that, that India comes close, I mean, South Asia comes closer to this specific uh, um, frame, frame of mind, namely a balance of power balance power regional security complex where these smaller actors try to balance up against the, uh, the potential hegemon in the region. Um, there are many examples of uh, failed regional cooperation, so South Asia is not the only one, and, and it's one of the things that when you look at, at, at uh, regional cooperation, it's actually Hard to find effective ones. Up until recently, the European Union would have been one example of success, and now you could say, well, it's gone through very dramatic challenges, not the least um, involving Brexit and other types of of challenges uh, to its stability. But there are very few examples of of successful regional uh, integration. (coughs) Um, Generally, you know, this is uh, open to debate as well. Successful regional integration takes place when smaller units in a hegemon-dominant regional security complex accept the superior position of the hegemon, or alternatively, when you have a balanced power regional security complex, when all units agree to act in unison. Um, I think that uh, in South Asia, you don't have either one of those potential and also, I mean, it's, not, it's, it's, it's very unlikely, especially now, to see the first outcome, namely where, where the, where the, uh, you have a hegemon-dominant regional security complex in which the smaller units accept the, the supremacy of the hegemon, in fact, quite the opposite, you could argue. And then you have the potential where a balanced power, a balance power complex where all the, the, the units uh, act in unison. Um, and so perhaps we, we, have co- we can come closer to that, except that India is not agreeable in general. It hasn't been agreeable to, to such an arrangement. Um, structurally, I argue that South Asia is an example of a hegemon-dominant uh, regional security complex. But institutionally, especially, uh, especially through SARC and other such, uh, uh, such institutions, uh, South Asia is presented as a balanced power regional security complex. So you have, to have this discrepancy between what is uh, the reality in the, on the ground in terms of the, the, uh, South, uh, India's uh, dominant position. Um, versus the, the institutional arrangements which provide or assume a balanced power of the security complex. Uh, much of the, I mean, uh, uh, not to go over, belabor the, the point that I made earlier about SARC and the way that that is structured, uh, I was quite surprised and when I interviewed, uh, when I went to, to, to Kathmandu to actually interview uh, you know, kind of the officials, uh, SARC officials, and say you know, so why, you know, just to work out why is it that they thought, I mean, of course it's hard to tell someone that you think that their institution is ineffective. So you said, well, you know, can you please elaborate as to what you, think is, you know, the, what, you know, the successes, and they couldn't come up with many, many such successes. But the, the, this kind of discrepancy between or the, the, the problems of trying to have unanimity in all decision-making made it very difficult for, for any activity, a regional activity, however reasonable it was, uh, to be carried forward. And so the key challenge I argue is that uh, it's for regional, uh, regional cooperation to, to reconcile structural and institutional dissonance in these two elements. Also, which makes it quite difficult to have regional, uh, successful regional cooperation is that you have the presence of two contiguous nuclear armed arbitraries in uh, South Asia's <coughs> regional complex, which further <coughs> undermines uh, re- potential for regional cooperation. I've tried to... Uh, to uh, Write, I mean, I've written on the on the kind uh, of the, the, the difficulties of actually making it possible uh, to have uh, uh, cooperation between India and Pakistan for a number of reasons. And, and the the one that's the most obvious one would be trade. Uh, and so the, there's a whole debate that you know if you have trading, uh, increase in trade and so on, that then the incentives for for war would, would decline uh, or conflict would decline o- over time. And I've written on the on the unlikelihood of that happening on the basis of the trade patterns that you have, uh, specifically that uh, India and Pakistan are not complementary in its trade uh, in, 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 its, in its exports. just uh, to put it very simply, uh, most of Pakistan's exports are textiles, and and, 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 uh, and so they're, they're, they don't, they wouldn't find a home. Uh, in, in, uh, in, in India and vice versa, in, 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 in the reverse, in, in India is one of the largest exports is textiles, and so, it, so it's unlikely that, that we're going to have a very durable trade relationship between the, uh, those two countries on the basis of, of textiles. There's in, uh, a lot of informal trade between India and Pakistan. Uh, there've been a lot of studies in terms of uh, third country uh, trade between India and Pakistan, but the the amounts. Um, there's this considerable volume, uh, but it's typically uh, brown nuts and things, you know, b- b- very small. Uh, uh, n- nothing you could call uh, you know, cars or, or, or machinery or things like that. It's, it's mostly small, more you know, tea, demand for, for tea from one country to the other, but, uh, but not much more. And so on the basis of that I, I, I have argued um, that, that checking the complementarity would make it very difficult uh, for for India and Pakistan to ever collaborate on trade, uh, which is one of the most likely uh, ways of collaborating, and if you look at the the active uh, military capabilities of India and, and Pakistan, you 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 notice the the you know, Pakistan being kind of the main challenger. This is data from from the uh, the Blight of Less. Um, and, and uh, it's selected some some items, but generally you find that that uh, that for it, 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 for India's military capabilities, uh, it, it completely uh, uh, overshadows, even a country that spends a lot of money on, on, on its military, such as Pakistan, it overshadows uh, Pakistan's capabilities. Of course, we that line by lines so, of all well, the armed forces in terms of naval, total naval, naval forces, in terms of the the, the actual, uh, uh, perhaps the reserves, there's some, some level of parity, but generally they don't have uh, a great deal of, of in terms of, in- conventional not very important a great deal of, 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 of capabilities to to match one to, to one uh, of course both countries have uh, access to 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 nuclear weapons uh, but even then in, in that instance uh, India has greater both greater reach and greater uh, capacity to actually destroy uh, Pakistan whereas Pakistan doesn't have the same corresponding um, capability against India um, there's a great deal of asymmetry uh, in, 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 so which gives India a clear strategic advantage over Pakistan. Um, India measures have greater range than, than current Pakistani ones. Uh, as, you, as you're aware, India at least official military doctrine is, is retaliatory as opposed to preemptive. Um, <coughs> and, 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 and in, in fact, uh, Pakistan is more vulnerable to a nuclear first strike by India due to, to its location of its uh, nuclear-related sites. Um, I'll show you a map so you can see what what I mean. Uh, India's nuclear strategy is focused on counter value, uh, focusing on cities, rather than counter force, uh, which is on uh, nuclear-related facilities. Uh, This is the the range of of, um, of Indian missiles. You can, I mean, I'm not sure if I have a little pointer here. Uh, Yeah, so you find that, in general, uh, the India India's missiles are able to reach much, much further uh, distances than than, uh, uh, than you'll see the Pakistani ones. And the one thing that makes Pakistan quite uh, vulnerable to uh, to, uh, uh, to an attack is the location. I mean, you can, I mean, y- even if, I mean, of course, there are different uh, different types of, of facilities, different types of sites for each one. But you find, if you, even if you knew nothing of the region. I so, said, well, if I put a bomb anywhere around here, uh, in a very small geographic area, you have going to mm-hmm. destroy the location of the capital, Islamabad, which is hidden here. Um, and, and so generally, you find a great deal of congregation of nuclear uh, facilities uh, in a very small geographic area, which also happens to be the capital. So with very little, uh, I mean, you may, you know, you may of course, I mean, try to hit Keta or something, but and, and try to get, destroy Keta, which would be of not great deal of significance because there's not really much uh, there for um, back Hill. But essentially, the, 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 you can decapitate it in, you know, in, in, a, in a crude way of putting it. Uh, Pakistan, in, or India, would have the like, capacity to do so, both in terms of the range and also the, the way in which the, uh, the, the Indian, uh, Pakistani in, in nuclear facilities are, are based. And then if you look uh, in, in contrast to Pakistan's uh, missile range, we find that it could probably, I mean, some of them, if they're kind of, depending on where they're, they're located, and you know, the optimal conditions, might hit New Delhi. That's uh, as far as the, but then the rest of India, which is quite a considerably large country, uh, would, be, would be unaffected by such, a, by such a missile strike. Of course, this is kind of speculative things, but, but it, it just denotes the, the obvious imbalance between both countries. And so both in terms of uh, military capabilities, economic uh, um, might, and other areas in which you may try to say, is there a potential um, area in which both countries can collaborate is very unlikely because in one area, India, and and pretty much all areas, India has a superiority over Pakistan, which makes Pakistan quite uh, um, vulnerable to to, uh, or a concern um, I mean, it's one of the things that I find quite surprising when I go to Pakistan. The actual paranoia that you find among, uh, I mean, mostly military people about uh, India's intention. They may, may may or not be the reality uh, as to what India intends to do. But in, in Pakistan, it, there's a certainty that India is trying to destroy Pakistan, and, and they have to kind of build up this arsenal to to counteract any potential encroachment. Of course, the, the uh, much of the, I mean, this is perhaps less of a, um, I'm going to make sure that I'm on time. Oh yeah, actually, half an hour or something. Yeah. I'll answer quickly. Um, much of the, of the relations between India and Pakistan have been focused on a number of, of areas, uh, subject areas, uh, on a, a composite dialogue. Of, of course, as you know, Jammu and Kashmir becomes one of the kind of areas which becomes very difficult for both countries to. To, to agree on all area other areas which perhaps may be much more um, much more uh, much easier for both countries to to try to engage in, in collaborative behavior I, I have argued as I mentioned to you earlier in of economic and commercial cooperation being one one such area but even that one is one where I don't find a great deal of, of likelihood that both countries are likely to collaborate o- o- over time <clears throat> so there are some uh, problems uh, that that that. that uh, that, that um, make uh, collaboration in, in South Asia quite quite difficult. Um, there's some insurgencies, of course. There, there are fewer insurgencies over over time, and I think that's one of the, the the positive or optimistic points of the uh, uh, outcomes of, over time that you have fewer civil wars, internal in civil wars. But there's still insurgencies that are quite 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 uh, threatening to uh, to Pakistan, especially, and uh, less so in India. But it's still, a, it is a problem right, with Naxalite insurgencies. Um, and, and the potential for, for state failure across the region. Uh, many, uh, maybe five, six years ago, m- many countries in South Asia were considered to be state failures now, less so, and so, so there's been, but still be, they're hanging on the balance in some ways, uh, on the edge. There's a problem with our population, uh, with weak uh, developmental in- improvements, the threat of war between, between India and Pakistan being one of them and the growing relevance of China as a geopolitical actor in South Asia. Um, we reached half a point, uh, essentially the half an hour, so I could stop here, oh, it's fine. Um, or continue, just so it's up to you. Yeah, I think you could continue, you have some time. So, okay, is there a consensus that I continue? <laughs> I mean, there's some people that, that I mean, I'm, uh, uh, drawing on and on and then just avoid it. And, 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 and. So, okay, I'll continue um, on the basis of what I think is a consensus. Um, um, and so, and, and so, my new area of interest is the um, the growing relevance of China as a geopolitical actor. And so, I've, I've written, um, you know, I would say interesting. I mean, I would, would uh, self-promote what I think is interesting work on 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 China's relationship with South Asia and the kind of different characteristics <coughs> of that, of, that, of that of that engagement. And so, generally. Um, <coughs> Realist balance of power theories tend to have, a, 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 I argue, with, with one of my, uh, uh, some of my collaborators, um, a big power approach where big powers are able to maintain its power by using smaller states to gain advantage or the adversaries by using uh, offshore balancing. In the context of competition between China and South Asia's regional hegemon, India, uh, I argue or have argued with, with, with Han, that South Asian countries are using China as an offshore balancing balancer against uh, India. So uh, rather than, than uh, coalescing uh, to form a, a dance power regional you know, security complex where, uh, where all, the, all the countries act in unison, um, uh, we have a situation where, where the smaller countries in South Asia um, are, are coalescing in relationship to its attraction or, or usage of China as a potential uh, friend. Uh, this is very much the case with Pakistan that, that you know, I, I, when I go to Pakistan, I, I notice the almost over enthusiasm for for China's friendship with, with Pakistan, um, irrespective of the potential downsides that they don't they seem to I mean, overlook or at least cannot ignore at this point. Uh, and you find similar uh, uh, kind of uh, kind of overexcitement in, in Sri Lanka and, and to a lesser extent in, in Bangladesh. And so there is there is a uh, a pole that, that China has in the region that, that India has never had. Uh, so one of the main uh, challenges for cooperation include, I mean, we have the, the, the opportunities of common uh, historical tradition, uh, and a good level of sociocultural cultural integration, but there's no no real sense of, of regional identification. I mean, I think most South Asians still would, would find it, you know, uh, in South Asia especially, I mean, uh, we have kind of South Asian studies departments, and so on, but in, in Western nations. But in South Asia, the, the idea that you are South Asian is a little bit uh, odd. And so most people identify themselves as being a region, a part of a region or a country, but not, not as part of the of South Asia in, in, in general. This may change. It's, it's still, I mean, even in Europe, we do still find, you know, I think, a few people say, I'm European versus you know, I am British, or I'm French. Um, and so that adds to the kind of uh, weakness of integration. Uh, regional uh, serious regional political tensions with low potential for political integration, weak economic integration, uh, partially as a result of the of this problem of trickle complementarity between different South Asian countries, where most of them have kind of similar uh, export uh, markets. Um, and 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 so the so the the one area where there has been some, in fact, that if you work now in um, new consultancies relating to, I mean, governments are fascinated with the idea of, of economic corridors, the British government being one of them, trying to kind of assist in the development of economic corridors across different parts of Asia. I worked on a number of projects. And so the idea of economic corridors has been a savior in irrespective of the, uh, as partially irrespective or as a result of the lack of, of trade uh, integration between countries is the new new trend. And one of them, of course, being the one that uh, that everyone's talking about between the, you know, the. China-Pakistan economic corridor. <clears throat> I'm not going to go into that one because it's a little bit, I mean essentially you, you're, you're getting into you kind know, of uh, uh, evaluating things that haven't yet happened, and so which is great. I mean, I love to you know, speculate things, but, but it's almost like palm reading or you know, astrology, so you have, in, a, in a way uh, it's fun, but it's not very very useful, ultimately, uh, to get concrete responses. But, there is, but it is undeniable that, in, that, in the, that that specific economic corridor is likely to transform, positive or negative, the region uh, over time. <coughs> um, I'm not going to talk about it, the the types of economic corridors uh, in depth. Uh, generally, they're, they're top uh, down and, and and bottoms up uh, types of of, uh, of of economic corridors. I, I, I suspect that the uh, there's um, the the, the, the China Pakistan economic corridors one, which is you know, essentially the one step that I that I have been engaged with tend to be top-down uh, economic corridors, where there's no necessarily economic activity, uh, but that you can manufacture and create the sense that you know, if you build a road, then you have all kinds of actors in between that assist in the creation of that corridor. <coughs> the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor uh, is clearly a, a very ambitious project, a of part of a larger uh, Chinese project of, of infrastructure development. Um, I, uh, I was speaking. Yes, I think yesterday, yeah, I was in Portugal yesterday, so I was talking about the specific uh, problem. <clears throat> my viewpoint, which is also quite debatable, and, and I'm probably quite happy to hear your your, your views on this, is that uh, this is an instance uh, or an example of what you could call imperial overreach. I mean, I think, in my view, a lot of the activities uh, that China engages in uh, in the region uh, or in other parts of the world. Are kind of quasi-imperialistic uh, in nature. Um, I said it's kind of a bold statement, uh, but that's the, the the way I look at it. And I think that the the, the effort to develop a, a massive infrastructure development project across uh, Asia through through Europe is a is part of a of, a, of a potential downfall. Because of course, when you build a road, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure I mean, I'm sure many of you have traveled on anywhere. I mean, I've been. Just an example, I was in Ethiopia a year ago. In the middle of nowhere, you find you know, Chinese engineers building a road in the middle. Of, and literally, hour, you know, have to drive for hours, and then you see you know, the, this, this, uh, this thing. And you say, well, what, where's this re- road going to? Of course, there, there's some larger plan. And of course, when you build a road, <coughs> um, which is relatively costly, uh, one of the things that, that we know from infrastructure development is that over time, the costs uh, accumulate, because of course you have to maintain the road, of course if it's a long road over uh, parts of the patch of area that's that uninhabited, uh, then, then the costs of maintaining it are quite, quite considerable. And so it's either the, the home country that actually uh, puts the bill for maintenance or alternatively you go to, to, to get the assistance of the person who actually owns the country to actually help you build the road. And so, either way, it is going to be uh, a tremendous uh, drain, I think, over time for, for China to have to build all these massive uh, road developments uh, and, and and corresponding on the home countries that are receiving the assistance. But nonetheless, at the point at this time, there's a great deal of enthusiasm. Um, so I, I argue that I would argue, and I think it wouldn't be particularly controversial, that that the China Pakistan Economic Corridor is going to be have a significant impact in in Pakistan. Uh, we still don't know what that would be. So, to, end, I think that the the viability of the Central Pakistan Economic Corridor uh, depends on a number of things. One is the the, the, complementarity that I discussed before, namely whether countries can 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 trade with each other on the basis of the of the the nature of their exports, Um, the the potential for network integration and geographic location. There are many such many challenges that 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 uh, likely in, 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 in South Asia, uh, sort of, you know, partially in the mountain. It to be mountains or specific features, geographic features, should make integration quite quite difficult. Uh, the existing environment for regional uh, cooperation, which is very low. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, there are always some optimists out there who who thinks there's a great deal of, uh, of integration, but I, I just don't see it. Uh, uh, I would be uh, interested in hearing your views on that. Uh, there, uh, if you have uh, minimal transaction costs, uh, then you the value of economic, economic corridors increases. But I think that those are not likely to be the case in, in the area. And then, whether you have a pre-commitment on transaction costs. As you know, most of the transactions, uh, most of the um, financing of these large economic corridor projects, is very uh, lack of transparency. We don't know how they're funded, how much money is being available. Um, I, have, I mean, I have this kind of wild theory, <clears throat> which I'm to, uh, happy to share with you, and you can you know, argue with me on that. <clears throat> I suspect that the, <clears throat> the I'm not sure if there's a plan, but simply the idea is that, that you build a project, a road project, or whatever it may be. Uh, the, you, you, uh, you lend money, uh, or you, you know, the, con- the home country borrows money for, for the development of that road project. Uh, and over time, the country, home country is unable to pay or meet the demands of the, of the loan uh, terms of the loan. And, and one of the things that I am beginning to see some evidence for, um, which supports my crazy idea, is that um, when you are unable to pay the loan, then you go to the country, in this case China, to, to seek assistance of some form. Uh, and, the, and the Chinese government is very, very clever, very smart about this. And... Instead of uh, just giving out money to, to you know, subsidize the the uh, uh, it's, it's a faulty loan, it, it requests the country to, to buy weapons from, from, from China. And so uh, I'm not sure how many of you know this, but uh, what are the two countries, you, I mean, I, you know, it's a tough quiz. What are the two countries you think right now that are the largest recipients of Chinese weapons uh, in the world? Pakistan and Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Myanmar was heading in that direction, it was kind of getting in. in, in Grain into the specific uh, in a, in a swamp. Uh, uh, but Pakistan and Bangladesh are, are. I think that you will find that all the countries, um, probably Sri Lanka will be one of them, a small country, but, but it is, you know, it, it, we still don't know how, uh, what the what, it, it is the true nature of its links with China, but I think that you will find that countries in South Asia are going to be in this situation, with the exception of India, um, uh, where they, they have become a lot more. I'm not going to call dependent because it, it just uh, recalls dependency theory, but essentially there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, asymmetric dependence uh, between countries in the region and in China, and I think that that would be the reality for most countries other than India, and, and so which would be interesting for you to see. Yeah. <clears throat>